came here with his wife Lisa. So uh, wave in the back. There they are. So don't be uh, don't be afraid of them. Um, their parents they love young people. So uh, when you see them, feel free to introduce yourself and ask them any questions. Talk to them. Um, they would love to get to know you. They would love to to help you in any way. So. Uh, Eric and I go way back, I think 12 years at least, uh, 12 years, we both went to, all four of us, so Eric, Lisa, myself, and Leslie, my wife, we all attended a church called Grace Emanuel Bible Church back in South Florida. Uh, so we attended that church, and they were married, and, and, and Leslie and I were married, and we, we started having our first kids, and Pastor Eric and I attended the Expositor Seminary together, um, and we graduated together. I think he was on the six-year route, were you? The godly route. Yeah, the, the, the godly track, the six-year track. Um, I was, I did it in four years, not because I'm Asian. Uh, <laughs> Pastor Eric actually was the one who graduated with the fancy, uh, rope and tassel and stuff I did. Cords. See, I don't even know. Yeah, they wouldn't give that to me if I don't know what it's called. Cords. Yeah. Um, but we both graduated together back in 2015. Uh, we served in different areas in back in the church. Um, I knew I knew Pastor Eric. I, uh, I watched him serve. I watched him be an example. And uh, and also, I watch. Uh, we we watch each other's families grow. So they have four children, and um, they are now ministering and serving in Venice, Florida. So on the other side, Gulf of Mexico, which is also the 12th campus of the Expositor Center. You probably have heard that from Pastor Scott from the pulpit at church. So he serves there as an associate pastor. He was he was the youth pastor, ministry pastor for a few years, and he's now the family pastor. And they've been there for seven years. So I actually have a picture. Um, I took it down not because I didn't like it. I took it down in my office because I needed the, the wall space for more bookshelves. But um, I, actually, I actually have a picture of Pastor Eric and I um, our last Sunday at GIBC. So it's it's him and myself and Lisa and Leslie standing in the front of, a, of the, the stage at the church. Pastor Jerry was praying for us and then all the elders had their hands on us. And that was our last Sunday. And he went to Venice and I came here. And, um, and from time to time I think of Eric I was thinking, what, when can I bring him here? And uh, this is the time, this is the year that the Lord has given us. So I'm really excited uh, that my friend is here. Uh, and I'm also excited to, to hear him preach God's word to us. Um, one, one passage that, that I was thinking about when I was thinking about all my friends back in seminary, because uh, a lot of them were a little bit older than me. A lot of them were more mature than me got married earlier than me, and, um, and this really described um, Pastor Eric and still does. So this is from 1 Timothy chapter 4. Okay, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul tells Timothy these words, verse 12, Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, Faith and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. So even though Eric and I were attending the same classes in the same seminary, graduated at the same time, I always, I always saw him as, as an example of all these things. And um, and I trust, and I'm sure that the church in Venice also sees him as an example to them. So. Um, I'm going to pray, and then I'll let you guys welcome Pastor Eric. Okay, so let's pray real quick. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us here together. We are 
thankful that that we arrived safely, that we have food and we have cabins, we have all all the things that we need um, to be here to learn from your word and to just have a, a beneficial and s spiritual stimulating time together. Uh, I, I ask that you would work in the hearts of the students, that you would, um, if, if it hasn't, that you would plant the, the seed, plant the gospel, plant the word in their hearts, and, uh, and that they would just develop a love for Christ, love for your word, love for humility that shows in teachability and being an example to others. We also thank you for all of our leaders, all the sacrifices they've made, and the way they lead, the way they disciple and shepherd all the, all the students. We do ask that everything will, uh, will hopefully work so that we can sing together starting tomorrow morning. And uh, we do thank you for everything that you've provided for us. We also wanna thank you for uh, blessing us with, with a guest speaker, with a pastor, um, Pastor Eric. Thank you for bringing him here. We ask that you would give him everything that he needs uh, physically, spiritually, everything that he needs to to just serve us and to just teach us, to point us to your word and to point us to biblical truth and give him clarity and give him exhortation. And uh, we just praise you. We just we, we thank you in advance for what he's going to bring to us. So thank you for tonight. Thank you for this first session. We uh, commit the rest of the weekend to you in Jesus name. Amen. Okay, let's welcome Pastor Eric. Well, thank you so much, Pastor Roy. You just stole my introduction, so all the details there. I was going to go over the history, but uh, it's almost as if you had my notes before I before I came up here. So. Uh, that was so, so sweet, and so sweet to think back on those times. I, when I think of Roy and uh, those times we had together at Grace Emanuel and Nick Spazer's Seminary, I, I think of uh, a man of stability. He's going to be a stabilizing influence in whatever environment he's in, and a man of humility. Uh, he's going to serve. He's going to do whatever the Lord calls him to do uh, with joy and, and faithfulness. So uh, in the way that he was looking to me, I was certainly looking to him as well, and seeing those things and encouraged by those. Uh, th this is such a, such a privilege, uh, such a great privilege to come and be able to bring the Word of God to you in an intentional time, just a unique context like this where we get to get away from our normal uh, day in and, and day out lives and come into a unique context, hear the Word of God on a regular basis, and interact about it. I heard your your enthusiasm about the discussions and, and the sessions and, and the discipleship, and that's so sweet to hear. I can tell this is a very tight-knit group, uh, especially when you're talking about body odor and evaluating one another's body odor. I mean, you know you guys are an intimate, close group if you <laughs> confront each other on those things, and you're still friends. So. Uh, I've done, uh, been, been to some youth camps and did youth ministry, and that's the, this is the first group that's confronting one another at that level, so <laughs> that's good. That's good. Well, we're going we're gonna to talk about, in our time together, the very important uh, topic of assurance, assurance of salvation. And I'm going to introduce that topic in a minute, and I'll define it, uh, but before I do that, I want to begin our time by describing what my life looked like when I was your age. And I attended church every Sunday. I would attend the youth gathering on Sunday morning, and then I would attend the main service. I would return every Sunday night for the evening service, where I either sat in the main evening service, or sometimes during seasons there was a youth ministry offered as well at that time. When I was in the youth gatherings, I would interact. I would have my Bible open. I would ask uh, questions. I would uh, answer to the best of my ability when I was called upon to answer a question. 
Uh, during that time, I was involved in a ministry called Youth for Christ. Not sure if you've heard of that. Sometimes it goes by the name Campus Crusade, but it's basically a youth group, but it consists of area churches, youth from area churches, and they meet. So it's not really connected to any one particular local church, but I was, I was uh, involved in that on Wednesday nights. During my teenage years, I went to several Christian music concerts, retreats, camps, uh, just like this. Uh, I was actually more committed to church, more committed to Christian things than anyone I was close to, especially any of my friends. I called myself a Christian. I even prayed on occasion, read my Bible sometimes by myself. I knew the Bible was true. I knew that Jesus was the Son of God, that he died for sinners on the cross, and that he rose from the dead on the third day. I knew that eternal life was found in him and in him alone. And I knew that if someone rejected him, that they would suffer eternal condemnation. I would even experience affectionate longings for Jesus. In my innermost being, I would, I would have longings for him, even, even shedding a tear or two on maybe a Christmas Eve service when we sang Away in a Manger. Anytime I heard someone in school or in my friendship circle mocking Jesus or the Bible, I would defend it. I didn't really know how to, but I would do so to the best of my ability. Needless to say, I had a lot of Christian activity. I had a lot of exposure when I was your age. I was interested. I was not a skeptic. I was not hostile. I would profess Christ with my lips. And yet, looking back on that time in my life, I can now look back and say decisively, I was the example of the almost Christian. I was not a believer. I was not a genuine Christian. I, I was a lost person who had attached themselves to religion. It just happened to be Christianity. Someone who was around the truth, around the church, associated with the right things, appreciating all the right things, and yet dead and lost. I was someone who could not and should not have had assurance. And that's why the doctrine of assurance is such an important topic for us to consider together over the next few days. Not only is it one of the more practical doctrines that you're going to be applying to your life on a daily basis, on a, on a regular basis as a Christian, for the rest of your life, you're going to be thinking through this, this doctrine. It's also one that's particularly relevant and important for people like you, the majority of you, growing up in a Christian Context. The majority of you are, are in Christian homes. The majority of you are in a, a good, biblical, local church. And you have biblically qualified shepherds over you, giving you the truth multiple times a week as you're interacting in small groups and, and as you're going through books in the Bible. And that means you are exposed to the truth. You're around the people of God on a regular basis. Many of you, even as I've heard you guys interacting, I can tell many of you have, you're reading the Bible yourself already. You're, you're calling yourself a Christian. You're praying. You, you have that relationship with the Lord. And so here's the question I want to pose to you as, as we begin our time. How do you know that you're not me at your age? How do you know you aren't someone who's attached themselves to Christianity, but not Christ? Someone who strives to do all the right things, who even looks like a Christian on the outside, but doesn't have the Spirit of God. How do you know? See, it's crucial to have clarity in this area because the, the Bible is abundantly clear that many people in the church who profess Christ are deceived and are in danger of waiting to find out until it's too late. Who are those people? Well, it's the people who love the privileges of the gospel. Uh, heaven, friendships, fellowship, a sense of purpose, a clean conscience, a moral life, great experiences like this. But they don't want anything to do with the duties of the gospel. They want the privileges. They want a superficial attachment to the privileges of the gospel. But they don't want anything to do with the duties of the gospel. 
And it is these who have a rock-solid confidence and expectation that they're going to be with the Lord, that they are indeed a genuine Christian, only to meet him on the last day and find out they were deceived. Now, how can we say that? How can we say that with confidence? Well, because Jesus himself said it. Let's look at Matthew 7, 21, just as we open our time together here. Matthew 7, 21, probably a passage you're familiar with. I just want to point out a few, a few interesting details here as it relates to our topic. Notice what it says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now notice first that the individuals in this passage profess an attachment to Christ. Notice, Lord, Lord. They did religious activity and service in his name. You see that phrase over and over and over. In your name, in your name, in your name. These aren't atheists. These aren't people in other religions. These are professing Christians, people in the church, people who serve others in the name of Christ. And here they are on the last day, and they offer up to Christ this flurry of religious activity in his name defending themselves, saying, this is why we should be with you for eternity. This is the proof we knew you. And notice verse 22 again, the beginning. Many, many will say to me on that day, a multitude of people will enter with this approach before the Lord. Enter with bold confidence that they were indeed a Christian, only to find out they were Self-deceived. They had a confident but false assurance. And Christ will say, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What does that mean? What's he saying there? Depart from me, you who lived in self-willed independence. You, you who pretended like I never told you what to do. I never gave you any commands to obey. And so studying this topic is important. It's so important because of this legitimate threat that the scriptures themselves warn us of, the threat of deception. How do we know that we're genuine and not self-deceived? And as I study this doctrine and I prepare to teach it, this is a very challenging doctrine to teach. Why is that? Because I have to avoid two errors to the best of my ability. One, I don't want any genuine believer to leave this camp in a state of despair or doubting their salvation when in fact they should be assured and they should have full, uh, full confidence. But at the same time, I don't want any self-deceived person to leave this camp confident and assured they're in Christ when they should be alarmed. And so that's the great balancing work we've got to strive for when we talk about this topic. We want to encourage and, and increase assurance in those who should have it. We want, we want to promote that, but we want to remove illegitimate assurance in those who are deceived. And really the goal then for all of us is to be so equipped in this area that we're making an accurate assessment of our spiritual condition before the Lord. That, that's the goal. We want to make an accurate assessment of our spiritual condition before the Lord. I want to draw your attention to a few resources I found helpful, particularly for session one and session two. I'll, I'll quote them from time to time. I'm, I'm even going to use some of the language of the outline in them, but just to put them on your radar, Saved Without a Doubt by John MacArthur. I think that resource is really helpful for the theology of assurance, the ground of our assurance, just rich gospel truth. And then for a more practical side of it, Knowing and Growing in Assurance of Faith by Joel Beakey. Knowing and Growing in Assurance of Faith by Joel Beakey. I would commend both of those to you, and those are resources that we'll be leaning upon from time to time in these first two sessions. Now, 
with those introductory thoughts in mind, we keep throwing around this word assurance, and it's time to define it before we keep going. So what do we mean? When you hear that term, assurance of salvation, well, what do we mean by that? Well, here's, here's what author Joel Beakey in the book that I just referenced, here's what he says. Assurance of faith is the conviction that one belongs to Christ through faith and will enjoy everlasting salvation. It is the conviction, the personal conviction, that one belongs to Christ. Or another, another definition, Sinclair Ferguson. It is the conscious confidence that we are in a right relationship with God through Christ. So notice in these definitions, assurance, when we use that word, we're talking about a conviction, a personal confidence that we belong to God, that we have experienced the benefits of the gospel in a saving way. Assurance, then, you can see, it's how we think about our own personal salvation. All right, so when we talk about assurance, we're not talking about the fact of whether or not we're saved, whether or not we are in Christ. We are talking about how we know we're saved. What is legitimate ground for having a personal confidence that we are saved? Assurance is not answering the question, do you believe? Assurance is answering the question, how do you know you believed? Now, by the way, the Lord wants you to have clarity. He wants you to have assurance if you're a believer. 1 John 5.13, I'll just read it for you. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know you have eternal life. The Apostle John wrote his entire epistle to this end. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you can probably already relate to this. You can probably already identify with this issue of assurance. You've probably experienced that your confidence, your personal confidence that you're in Christ is not always the same. Sometimes it's strong. Sometimes it's weak. Maybe other times it's lacking altogether and you're in a state of despair and you don't know how to get out. And I want to note here at the beginning that wrestling with assurance Having those seasons where sometimes it's strong and weak and thinking about that and having the diagnosis, that's not necessarily a mark of spiritual immaturity. In fact, it could be a sign that you're maturing and that you're genuine in Christ. Why do I say that? Well, here's one reason. Pharisees don't really wrestle with assurance. Pharisees are typically what we would call self-assured. Let's look briefly at another passage. Look at Luke 18, verse 9. It's a classic passage on the, the self-righteousness of the Pharisees and their, their tendency to trust in themselves and view others with contempt. Luke 18, verse 9. <clears throat> Just see how the Pharisee is operating before others and before God in this parable. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. There's the definition of a Pharisee right there. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you, I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I pay tithes of all that I get. Does he have assurance in that passage? Absolutely. He, he's confident. I, I am accepted by God. I'm in good standing with God. He doesn't entertain the idea that he's not in a favorable position before the Lord. And yet, if we were to keep reading, what do we find out? He's the one who's not justified. He's the one who's lost in this parable. This is what happens when we deal only in shallow externals in the Christian life. It'll result in illegitimate, undeserved assurance, like the Pharisee here. Why is that? Because Pharisees invent an achievable standard to live by. And for the most part, they obey that standard. They take significance in that standard. They use that standard to compare themselves to others and elevate themselves above others. And this results in a misplaced confidence in their external religion. What does that look like, by the way, for youth in the church? 
a misplaced confidence in external religion. Here's what it might sound like. All right, I don't use profanity. I don't steal. I don't drink, smoke. I don't do drugs. I don't go to R-rated movies. All, all the things that the people in the world do, I don't do any of those things. Therefore, it means God accepts me. It means I'm a Christian. Well, that's great that you don't do those things. But as we're going to see in our times together, it doesn't require the Spirit of God to avoid those things. That's exactly how the Pharisee prayed. He said, I, God, thank you. Thank you I don't do these things. Thank you I'm not like other people. And then he obeys the standard that he himself has created. Certainly not saying that the Christian life doesn't involve externals. It certainly does. But the Pharisee, the one who's self-assured, what do they do? They reduce the entire Christian life down to one of externals. Achievable human righteousness. And then they trust in it. And they have illegitimate assurance. All that to say, it is more commonly genuine believers who are wrestling with assurance. Because genuine believers, what's true of us? We have new desires, new affections, new thoughts, new habits present right alongside the remnants of sin. Our old self has been crucified, but the remnants of that old self linger around with us the rest of this life. And even in the life of the most holy Christian on earth, there's always going to be a constant battle against sin and a continual need for confession and repentance and growth toward godliness. And this is what can make assurance so difficult at times. Given the fact that both the unbeliever and the believer still sins, what are those distinguishable differences that we can look at in Scripture that demonstrate, okay, yes, that person still has sin they're wrestling with, but they can only be, their life can only be explained by the Spirit of God. What are those evidences? That's the question that we're going to answer as we go through these times, these sessions together. Let me take a moment and demonstrate to you yet another reason why it's important to study this matter of assurance. If someone were to ask you, let's just test yourself here. How do you know you're a Christian? Assuming that you are professing Christ and you believe that you belong to him. Imagine in your mind how you would answer that question. How do you know you're a Christian? Here's why this is important. You might notice today in the church that when we try to answer that question, we confuse how we became a Christian or what Christians are commanded to do with how we know we're a Christian. Let me illustrate that. Here's a common answer to, to how do you know you're a Christian? I know I'm a Christian because Jesus died for me and rose again on my behalf. No, that's not how you know you're a Christian. That's what you must believe in order to become a Christian. What about this one? I know I'm a Christian because I walked an aisle, I signed a card, I was baptized, I made a decision for Christ several years ago. No, that might be the time. Those may be the circumstances that the Lord used where you became a Christian, but that's not how you know you are one today. Or this one. I know I'm a Christian because the Holy Spirit came into my life and I felt the presence of God. And since that day, I have felt his presence. That's how I know I'm a Christian. Well, an insufficient answer because it's dangerously subjective. What does the presence of God feel like? What does it feel like for the Holy Spirit to come into your life? We wouldn't want to rest our assurance, our eternal confidence on something as subjective as a feeling. What about this one? I know I'm a Christian because I believe the Bible. I, I agree the Bible is true in everything that it says. So do the demons, according to James 2, 19. What about this one? I know I'm a Christian because I try to live by God's righteous standard. I try to keep the commandments of God. Who, who else did that? The rich young ruler, the Pharisees. I know I'm a Christian because all of my closest companions are genuine believers, even mature believers. Well, that was true of Judas as well. 
I know I'm a Christian because I believe the gospel. That's closer. We're getting there now, but we've got to go further. How do you know you believe the gospel? Because the Bible talks about what? Living faith and dead faith. How do you know which one you have? Both of them are faith. I know I'm a Christian because I'm committed to the church. I read God's word. I pray. I evangelize. I've been baptized. I feel guilty when I sin. No, those are all things Christians should experience and do. None of them are evidence alone that you have the Spirit of God. Why is that, by the way? Because we could go, or even in a later session, we're going to do this. We're going to look at examples in Scripture where unbelievers are doing all those very thing, same things. So this is the issue when it comes to our times together. What do you look for? What can actually assure you and give you legitimate confidence before God that you are indeed a child of God? Well, the answer is by identifying those things in our lives that can only be explained by the Spirit of God. And we're going to eventually go to those, but before we get to those, we're going to spend the rest of tonight and tomorrow morning identifying common reasons why we lack biblical assurance. So we're going we're gonna to start off on the negative. We're going to look at here's, here's why we might lack assurance, lack that personal confidence that we belong to Christ. And then we're going to look at, now where do I go to in order to get it? What do, I, what do I look for? How do I examine myself in this area? All right, so that's our outline. What are some of the most common reasons that we might lack the legitimate, deserved personal confidence that we are in Christ? And tonight we're going to start with the one that requires the most explanation. It'll be longer than the rest of them. But this is the foundation of assurance. So we have to spend time with this. The theological foundation of assurance. So the first reason why we might lack assurance, we'll just call it gospel confusion. Bad gospel theology. Without a biblical understanding of the gospel and salvation, legitimate assurance is impossible. So we have to take a few minutes here and begin by reviewing some foundational gospel truths. If you are in the ministry at, at Northwest, uh, Northwest Community Church, this is going to be review. You're, you, these are going to be things you've heard many times, but we have to lay it again. We have to lay the foundation when we talk, to, talk about assurance. What is the gospel? If someone came up to you on the street, never read the Bible, never gone to church, they said, can you in one sentence tell me what the gospel is? And... and and the task was, you've got to combine what's of first importance. Could you do that in one sentence? Do you have it clear in your mind right now? Here, here's my attempt at a clear and concise definition of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God saves sinners through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news that God saves sinners through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, I want us to note some components of that definition. First, we have the literal meaning of the word gospel, which is what? Good news, right? So we have good news, and then we have the, the, the theological reality of the gospel, which is what? God saves sinners. God saves sinners. And then we have the historical events which serve as the basis for that theology. What are the historical events? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is no gospel apart from historical facts. There is no gospel without the theological significance of those historical facts. So when you think gospel, when you hear that word, you should be thinking historical event death, burial, resurrection of Christ Jesus, and theology, the significance of that event, God saving sinners through that work. Probably the clearest place where you see both of those, the, the history and the theology, come together, 1 Corinthians 15. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. Notice what Paul says to the Corinthians here. For I delivered to you as of 
first importance, that which I also received. All right, Paul, what was the content you delivered to Corinth when you came into Corinth on your initial missionary journey to them? And they, and they were lost. They were worshiping idols. What, was, what did you give them that was of first importance? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now notice, you see the history there? He died, he was buried, he was raised on the third day. At the same time, it's not mere history. Notice the theological significance. He died for our sins. There it is. There was a divine redemptive purpose in his death. And that's what the gospel is about. It is about God saving us from the penalty and power of sin. When God delivers us from eternal condemnation unto eternal life. Now, how does a sinner receive the benefits of that gospel? In other words, how does the gospel become a reality for anyone? Well, you know the answer. If you've been, if you've been under Pastor Roy's teaching and Pastor Scott's teaching, you know the answer is they trust in Christ alone. They trust in Christ alone. They believe. Galatians 2.16, I'll just read it for you. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. See that phrase, to trust in Christ alone. What does that mean? It means it is the wholehearted commitment to the person and work of Christ, embracing truth about Christ and trusting in Christ himself, placing all of one's confidence and hope in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. And sometimes a question comes out here when we talk about faith alone the question can come, well, what about repentance? Because some passages seem to imply repentance is necessary, as well as faith. So how do we explain that tension? Well, I find it helpful to think of it this way. Faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin of conversion. Repentance is the negative aspect. That is the act of turning away from ungodliness, turning away from sin. So Repentance is viewing our salvation with regard to our deeds, what we're doing with our deeds. We're turning away from our deeds, while faith is the positive act. We are turning and placing our hope in Christ, no longer in ourselves. So faith is the object of our, of our, uh, our confidence. It's, it's Christ. Repentance has to do with our deeds. But they're not, they're not different gospels. They're two sides of the same coin of conversion. One author put it this way, not synonymous, faith and repentance, but twin graces that can never be separated. So that's why sometimes you'll read a passage like Acts 16.31, and it'll say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Where in the very next chapter, Acts 17.30, you might hear this, God commands all people everywhere to repent. So it's repent and believe. They're two sides of the same coin. Now, what happens? What happens when a sinner repents and trusts in Christ alone? Well, God forgives them of their sin. Past, present, future, guilt is forgiven. From that point forward, God will never hold your sins against you in judgment. And they are declared righteous in his sight. That is the reality of justification. An instantaneous legal act of God in which, through Christ, he declares us righteous in his sight. Justification is a one-time act which happens the moment you repent and believe in Christ alone. From that moment on, before God in the courtroom of heaven, you can never be more or less righteous, you can never be more or less accepted, more or less justified in his sight. Why is that? Because it's not based on your behavior, your feelings, your worthiness, but the very righteousness of Christ that's imputed to your account 
through faith. One passage that's helpful with that, you can just jot it, jot it down by way of reference. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Some of you probably have this memorized. He made him, that's God. God made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So you see that? Our sin was imputed to Christ's account. His righteousness is imputed to our account. This is the great theology of the gospel. Now, again, we're admitting these are, these are foundational truths. Uh, truths that are probably by way of review for many of you. But we have to grasp these things, especially as we talk about assurance. And we have to recognize there is no such thing as assurance in any religious system outside of faith in Christ. Any works-based religious system can't possibly have the doctrine of assurance. Why is that? Because if my deeds, if my works are the basis of my right standing before God, how can I ever be confident in this life that I've done enough? How can I ever know if I'm truly one of God's children? But if I understand that my righteousness is in heaven, it's Christ. And when God justifies me, he sees Christ. It's, it's his righteousness imputed to my account. That is the foundation. That is the ground of my assurance. Now, let's apply that to assurance now. How does this get applied to assurance? Well, have you ever confused the object of your faith? What I mean by that is that you don't consciously say, okay, I'm no longer going to trust in Christ anymore today. I'm going to trust in this other religious figure or this other thing. I don't mean you consciously do it. I mean it's more subtle than that. It's when your faith is actually not in Christ, it's in your faith. When your faith is in your faith. As in the strength or intensity of your faith. So if you have weak faith, eh, God's not really impressed with me. I'm not really righteous before God in Christ. He doesn't really accept me in Christ because my faith is weak. When I have strong faith, okay, now he accepts me in Christ. Now I'm justified in Christ. Okay, now, now he's smiling upon my life. Your faith then is not in Christ in those moments. It's in your own faith. What's happening there? That is the result of confusing saving faith with perfect faith. You've confused saving faith with perfect faith, and those are not the same thing. In fact, no one has perfect faith. In Mark 9, 24, a father cries out to Jesus. You, you can probably finish the sentence, I believe, and then what's he say? Help my unbelief. What? I believe. He just said, I believe. Now he's saying, help my unbelief. Which is it? Well, he doesn't have a perfect faith, a faith without any, any weakness. But that statement itself demonstrates one can believe, and it's not perfect, and it's also an expression of faith in Christ. When you cry out to Christ in a moment of weakness saying, I believe, but it's so weak, it's so weak, I barely believe, but I do. Is that not itself an expression of faith? Now, this idea of trusting in your faith rather than Christ, I'm seeing a lot of confused looks, so we have an illustration we're going to go to here. Hopefully this will help. I'm going to turn to theologian Don Carson as he, he has provided a helpful illustration for this. He writes this. Picture two Israelites, picture two Jews, by the name of Smith and Brown. He didn't get too creative with his names here. The day before the first Passover, remember that in the book of Exodus? That's when the angel of death would strike down the firstborn of all homes in Egypt unless they had what? The blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And these two men are having a little discussion in the land of Egypt, and Smith says to Brown, Boy, are you, are you a little nervous? about what's going to happen tonight? Brown says, well, God told us what to do through his servant Moses. You don't have to be nervous. Have you slaughtered the lamb and have you daubed the, the two doorposts with blood? Did you, did you put the blood where he told you to? Haven't you done that? You're all ready and packed to go. You're going to eat the Passover meal with your family, right? 
Smith replies, of course, of course I've done that, I'm not crazy. But it's still pretty scary. When you think about all the things that have happened around here recently with the plagues, you know, flies and rivers turning to blood, it's pretty awful. And now there's a threat of the firstborn being killed. You know, it's all right for you. You've got three sons, but I've only got one. And I really love my son. And the angel of death is passing through tonight. I know what God says. I put the blood there, but it's scary. And I'll be glad when tonight's over. Brown replies, bring it on. I trust the promises of God. That night, the angel of death swept through the land. Out of these two men, which one do you think lost his son? And the answer, of course, is neither. Why? Because death doesn't pass over them on the ground of the intensity or strength of their faith, but rather on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. Carson writes this, How many times do we writhe in agony asking if God can ever love us enough, if he can ever care for us enough after we've done such stupid, sinful, rebellious things, even after being Christians for a long time. What should we say in those moments when we fail God over and over and over? What should we say? Oh God, I tried hard, you know, I did my best, it was a bad moment. Hopefully not. Rather, I hope you would say, I have no other argument. I need no other plea. It's enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Carson ends by saying this. We overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. There is the ground of all human assurance before God. There is the ground of our faith. If we trust in our faith, we're never going to have assurance. If we trust in Christ and we have that gospel clarity, we will. Or at least we have the foundation for it. So that's, a, that's one example of how we get confused in this area. We know it's all about faith. We hear justification by faith alone. We hear believe in Christ, believe, believe. But we end up trusting in our faith rather than in Christ. Now, I actually find this to be very common in pastoral ministry, so I'm going to talk more about this one a little, a little more in depth in the next session as well. But I want to talk about a second area of bad gospel theology that threatens our assurance as well. So we just looked at confusion about justification by faith alone and when we trust in our faith. Now we're going to look at the rejection of the doctrine of eternal security. Eternal security. So this would look like this. Yes, I know the gospel. I know it's faith alone in Christ alone. But what if I lose my faith? What if I lose my salvation? What if my salvation isn't secure? All right, so this is assurance as it relates to eternal security. Eternal security and assurance, it's not the same thing, although they're, they're similar. They're, they're related to one another. Eternal security is this. Those who have been genuinely converted, those who have genuinely come to Christ, cannot then go back to an unconverted state. Those who have been born again cannot go back to being not born again. Those who have sincerely, genuinely believed will always sincerely, genuinely believe. But some people today lack assurance because they don't believe this truth. They don't believe that salvation is a permanent and irrevocable reality in a person's life. They don't understand the work of a sovereign God in saving sinners. Salvation is all of the Lord. I am probably preaching to the choir here for the most part, but I'm going to nonetheless because we need the reminders. Salvation is of the Lord. That's not to say we aren't responsible to repent and believe. It's not to say we aren't responsible to strive and obey in our sanctification. But at the same time, the faith we have is what? A gift. It's a gift of God. And the willing and striving we have in our sanctification, that is produced 
by God. Any holy inclinations you have toward Christ, you cannot attribute that to yourself. That is from the Lord. We don't cause ourselves to be born again. We don't justify ourselves. We don't sustain our faith. We don't keep ourselves believing, and we don't glorify ourselves. It is all the Lord. Let's look at a few examples of this. Ephesians 2, verse 8. Another very... A familiar passage probably from, for many of you. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now the idea in the original language here is, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that's the entire clause. Being saved by grace through faith, all of that. The grace, the faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. By the way, that's the answer for why you believe and someone else rejects. You certainly wouldn't want to say that you just happen to be more spiritually wise or smarter than someone else. No, God worked in your heart. He opened up your eyes to see Christ. Look at Jeremiah 32, 38, speaking of the new covenant. So here in this passage, what I want to highlight is the, the persevering faith that we are given by God. When we truly come to him. Jeremiah 32 verse 38. They shall be my people. And I will be their God. And I will give them one heart. And one way. That they may fear me always. For their own good. And for the good of their children after them, I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. Now notice this. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. Look at that language. If a person is in the new covenant, they're going to remain in it. It's a guarantee. God will so work to put the fear of him, loyalty to him, faith to him, in our hearts so that we will not turn away. Now you say, well, what if a person wants to turn away and ends up abandoning God? Well, that's evidence that God never gave them that heart we just read about. He never put the fear of them in their heart. Fast forward to John, John's Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John chapter 6, verse 37. <clears throat> John 6, 37, Jesus speaking, All that the Father gives me shall come to me. All, all whom God sovereignly chooses will come to Christ, but will they remain? Notice, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. So if anyone comes to Christ and doesn't remain in Christ, Jesus is a liar. Then Jesus said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Note, look at that. All who are chosen for salvation, all who come to Jesus Christ, will be raised up at the great resurrection on the last day. Fast forward, John chapter 10, verse 27. John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given to me, who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. This is a picture of security to the utmost. The believer resting securely in Christ's hands, which are in turn clasped tightly by the Father's hands. Now, believe it or not, I've read that passage to someone struggling with this very doctrine, and they said, well, yeah, no one can snatch them out, but I can jump out 
if I want to. Well, notice the text again. No one. Does that include you? No one. No one is able to do it. One more passage, then, then we'll start to bring this to a close. Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28. We're going to read a very familiar, a very quoted promise for believers today. But then we're going to keep reading as to how it can be true. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Prove it, Paul. How is that true? Why is that true? Verse 29. For, here's the explanation. Here's why verse 28, how it can be true. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, and whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. All right, so verse 29 and following is the, is the explanation of how verse 28 can be true. All things work together for good if you're a believer. Why? Because every single detail in your life is foreordained by God to fulfill that very plan of salvation and make you more like Christ. Notice in this passage, if you're a Christian, it is not something, not because of something you did, but because of something God decided, in the words of one author. And much of contemporary evangelicalism has not been helpful because it leaves us with the impression that it's just all about you waking up one day and all of a sudden saying, I think I'm going to just choose to follow Jesus the rest of my life. And again, you have to choose. You, you do make that decision, but you have to think about what's going on. What, what is God doing in my heart that would lead me to worship him in that way? Notice again in verse 29, for whom he foreknew. That is where the redemptive plan starts, with God's foreknowledge. Now, this is very important. Foreknowledge does not mean foresight. Foreknowledge does not mean foresight. That's how many people think about this word when they see it in Scripture. They envision God with these Supernatural, supernatural divine uh, binoculars looking into the future. Oh, okay, I see that's going to happen. I see that's going to happen. I see this person's going to choose me. I see that person's going to choose me. And that's what verse 29 means. Those whom he foreknew. He, he foresaw. They change it to mean for, foresaw. Well, notice how we have to read those ideas into the passage to make it say that. Notice it doesn't say, for those whom God foresaw would accept him, he predestined. That's not what it says. Furthermore, if that's what this passage is about, God just looking into the future to see who would accept him and reject him, the entire chapter becomes pointless. What's the point? What's the significance of the scriptures highlighting God foreknew you, predestined you, and called you? If you did it all on your own and he just noticed it in the future, what's the point? What's the point of praising God for it? You did it yourself. He just saw it. No, God doesn't have exhaustive knowledge of the future because he has a crystal ball that he peers in and out of. No, in that case, you would have God learning things, which is not the God of the Bible. God has never learned anything, ever. He doesn't learn anything. No, what does this mean? What does this mean here, this, this passage, this foreknowing language? God's foreknowledge is not a reference to his foresight. It's a reference to his foreordination. Any faith he foresees is the faith he gifts to the individual. He foreknows individuals in this passage. Individuals are the object of the verb. It's people he foreknows. What does that mean? It means he marked them out. He set his love upon them beforehand. That's what it means. And then in verse 30, these people that, that he foreknew, he foreloved, he set his affection upon them. He, he also called. 
God's calling. What is that? That's where his eternal plan intersects with your life in time and history. In eternity past, he predetermined to love you. He predestined your salvation. God's calling begins when he moves into your life in time and history, brings you the gospel, gives you a heart to believe, and that foreordination becomes a reality in your life. Notice next in verse 30, those whom he called, he justified, he declared righteous. This then leads to glorification. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. Past tense. Look at that. Past tense. It's so certain. God can speak of it in the same tense that he spoke of your justification, your calling, your predestination. This means in one great moment of eternal time, God said all these things were done. Predestined, called, justified, glorified. Now, why do I go over this with a room where you've probably heard these things? You probably already believe these things? Well, because if you don't understand, if you don't have clarity about these things as it relates to assurance, you're going to struggle in that area. Because you're going you're gonna to wonder, am I falling in and out of salvation? Am I falling in and out of God's love? Because you've wrongly believed I played a much more significant role in this whole thing than the scriptures actually say. So th this is the first reason why some might lack assurance, and it's just bad gospel theology. Bad gospel theology. So the gospel is a work of man, not God. Uh, we, we trust in our, in our faith instead of trusting in Christ. Again, this is the foundation. But without this foundation, there's no hope of any assurance, any legitimate assurance anyway. Now, in the next session... I promise we're going to get much more practical. This was a theological foundation of assurance. We had to have that foundation in place. And just to whet your appetite for the morning, here are the other reasons we're going to cover. So we're going to keep looking at common reasons why we might lack assurance. And a lot of these headings are out of Joel Beakey's book I mentioned earlier. What we're going to look at when we misunderstand the character of God, where we have an unbalanced view of God's character... This, this looks like emphasizing his wrath, anger, judgment, righteousness, holiness, hatred of sin. But then we never believe or ever think about his grace, compassion, mercy, kindness to sinners. So an unbalanced or misunderstanding of God's character. Then we're going to look at another reason why we lack assurance. An ambiguous or uncertain conversion experience. A person who struggles to identify, uh, I think I'm a believer now, but I can't look back at any time when it actually happened, so maybe I'm not, because I can't identify when I actually came to Christ. So this person struggles with assurance because they can't narrow their conversion down to a day, a month, a week, a year, whatever it might be, an event. Then we're going to look at unbiblical expectations about temptation and sin in the Christian life. If I sin in this way, if I think thoughts like this, it automatically means I'm, I'm not a believer. There's no way a believer could ever have such a thought enter his mind. There's no way a believer could ever do such a wicked thing. So unbiblical expectations about temptation and sin in the Christian life. Then we're going to look at when we misunderstand or misinterpret trials and suffering in our lives. And so we lack assurance when life gets really hard because we think, oh, I guess God doesn't love me. Look at what he's done with my life. Look at how hard my life is. I guess he's angry at me. Therefore, maybe I'm not his true child. Then we're going to look at a legitimate reason why we should lack assurance. Unrepentant sinning. Just living in unrepentant sin. That, that, that is a reason why we should not have assurance. And then a very important one that we're going to look at, possessing a doubting or negative disposition, more introverted, a personality that's always second-guessing itself, overly uh, analytical, always focusing in life on the negative things, uh, always looking inward, examining 
emotions and and motives. I know I reached out to this person, but was it really pure? And and they get into this perilous cycle of uh, second guessing themselves. So we're going to look at that that tendency that that some of us might have and speak to that. And then we're going to look at dealing with guilt unbiblically. That will cause us to lack assurance when we self-atone instead of going to God to cover our sin. And then we're going to look at looking for assurance in the wrong places. So this is when we look at things that Christians do and are supposed to do, like attending church, reading their Bible, praying, all the things that, that we're supposed to do. But when we try to get confidence in those things, we look to those things as the ground of our assurance instead of things that can only be explained by the Spirit of God. Okay, so that's really trying to manufacture assurance by looking at the external things in the Christian life. We'll look at that. And then a final reason we'll, we'll look at is a lack of conversion. That's the reason why we wouldn't have assurance. We, we aren't indeed in Christ. All right, so those will go... Fairly, fairly quickly, but that's where we're heading tomorrow morning. So let me let me pray as we conclude our time together tonight. So Father, thank you for loving us enough to, on the one hand, guard us from illegitimate assurance, to keep us from placing our confidence in things that might be good for us to do, but don't prove that we belong to Christ. And on the other hand, thank you for loving us enough to give us what we need for legitimate assurance. To not leave us guessing with regard to our personal confidence that we indeed belong to you. And as we go through this series uh, here at the camp, our prayer is for clarity. That we would think of ourselves and our spiritual condition as you think of us. Not more strictly, not more leniently. And so we commit our our time and our hearts and our minds and wills to you, and we trust that whatever you do and however you choose to work in our time at this camp, it would be for the good of your church and for your great glory. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.